This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on May the 29th, 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Simon Brook joins me here live in studio to look through the papers. And then... When people come back to the office after their date with the needle, everyone wants to hear what vaccine they had and how they feel. There's some excitement a sense of duty. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekly column. We'll find out how to choose the perfect healing holiday, plus... We learned that flying to Belarus might be tricky for the foreseeable, or at least that your best chance of getting there might be booking a ticket between two completely different countries and seeing if you get lucky. All that coming up on Monocle on Saturday. Do stay with us. First, here are the headlines. In the US, the president has released his first annual budget, a $6 trillion spending plan, which would include huge new social programmes and investment against climate change. It also lays out plans to increase taxes for higher earners. Joe Biden said his budget invests directly in the American people and will strengthen our nation's economy and improve our long-run fiscal health. Congress has until the end of September to enact new spending bills. If they fail to pass a new budget, the government could partially shut down. Colonel Asimi Goita, who declared himself interim president of Mali on Wednesday, two days after seizing power in the country's second coup in nine months, has had the appointment approved by the country's constitutional court. The court stated that Goita should take on the responsibilities of interim president to lead the transition process to its conclusion. Goita says a new prime minister would be appointed within days and that elections would still go ahead next year as planned. Organisers of an annual vigil to commemorate the Chinese Communist government's bloody crackdown on student-led pro-democracy protests in Beijing's Tiananmen Square in 1989 said today that they've lost an appeal to hold this year's rally. This marks the second year that Hong Kong police have banned the vigil. The new security law, combined with coronavirus restrictions, have cleared the city's streets of protesters after anti-government demonstrations plunged the financial hub into turmoil in 2019. And in our Monocle Minute email weekend edition bulletin, dispatches from London, New York and Hong Kong provide three vibrant examples of our cities coming alive again. Elsewhere, we feature a classic car auction that's not to be missed and provide a sun-soaked West African soundtrack for the inevitable top-down road trip. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, it's time now to have a browse through this morning's papers, and I'm joined today by Simon Brook, who's a journalist and communications consultant. Uh, Simon, we're just referring to our Monocle Minute there, which talks about cities coming alive again. And, of course, a great example of that, that you're here actually in the studio. And it's so good to be here (laughs) face-to-face again. Yeah, absolutely. It just makes such a difference, doesn't it? It it? really does. I thought I, I could do this in my pyjamas as I've been doing the last few months or I could actually make the effort to get dressed and come here and getting back to normal definitely. As you can see I basically combine the two. I do do it <laughs> very almost in my pyjamas but I am here in person. <laughs> uh, let's effort. start with the FT. Now this is a really interesting story and what's interesting about it not only the content but where it's been covered and 
who hasn't covered it. So tell us about this uh, COVID-19 lab leak theory. Yes, it's a, it's a continuing coverage of, a, of an idea that sort of started as a almost sort of conspiracy theory uh, or was, was viewed anyway as a, some sort of wacky idea um, by Trump-supporting Republicans and other people. But as you say, it's now being far more widely reported. The Wall Street Journal's covered it. France Inter has covered it. Um, and now we've got a piece in the FT, um, <clears throat> excuse me, looking at whether um, the virus actually didn't start in, in, a, in a wet market, as it's called, but escaped from the virology lab at Wuhan. And the, the FT takes an angle on it, looking at something called gain of function, which is basically a kind of research that involves manipulating pathogens, as it says, to make them more lethal with the idea of understanding how they work. Now, this was funding was for this was removed by President Barack Obama because he saw obvious threats, risks here. But it has continued in certain facilities around the world. And one of the places which has been maintaining the research is the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So continuing this idea that there could have been some leak from the from the institute and, and that's where this uh, the pandemic came from. Mm, and I mean, that's kind of backed up with the evidence that three scientists from that lab were in fact hospitalised back in that November. Yeah, absolutely. So that's another little bit of evidence. Also, the, the the FT reporting reminding us this morning that originally the World Health Organization dismissed the idea, uh, said it was extremely unlikely. But now uh, the uh, director general has said that that initial investigation had not been extensive enough. And so reopening the question. The question is, of course, um, what would China's reaction be? Obviously, they've been very dismissive themselves of the idea, but I think it shows how this pandemic is very political, isn't it? And I think there's a risk some people might see that uh, if we do, um, you know, accuse uh, a Chinese laboratory of being the source of the virus, will that then put the Chinese government off collaborating with other governments around the world to actually do something about um, making sure that it never happens again. Mm, absolutely. And then, and in the FT Big Read today, which focuses on Asian business, it talks about Wall Street's new love affair with China, but points out that despite the business logic, Wall Street's push into China presents a jarring contrast with the political mood, which is exactly what you're saying. Exactly. It's, it is interesting that these two things have come together. There's already concerns about China's grip on the world economy, uh, increasing concerns about President Xi's record on human rights and things. And now we've got this added level of the question of whether, in addition to all of those concerns, was China also responsible for the, the initial outbreak? Yeah. Let's move on to The Guardian now. And this is really good news for, for, for climate activists. Uh, they're reporting on Black Wednesday, uh, which, of course, was when big oil uh, really lost in the courtrooms. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, as the paper says, campaigners are sensing a turning point as not only shareholders, but boards as, uh, and other uh, organisations, other, other stakeholders, if you like, have been forcing the big oil companies like Chevron, Exxon, Mobil and uh, Shell to, to really think about the effect they're having on the environment. Uh, according to The Guardian, the way they put it, the world's patience with the fossil fuel industry is wearing thin um, and there's been a sort of stark message to them uh, this week. I mean, a stunning series of defeats for the oil industry, says The Guardian, over the course of less than 24 hours. Shell, ExxonMobil, uh, well, Shell, for instance, was ordered by a court in The Hague to go far further to reduce its climate emissions. And then you had shareholder rebellions in the US, which
which imposed uh, emission targets at Chevron and uh, there was a boardroom overhaul at Exxon who had the, the same effect as well. Um, and there's a quote from Jesper Turlings, who's a former general counsel for, for Greenpeace International. He says that the uh, Dutch court ruling ordering Shell to cut its emissions within 45, by 45% within 10 days really shifts the debate. And it really is interesting. I think this piece shows how, as you say, things are really beginning to change and, uh, you know, the, the, the pressure is stepping up. Mm. And I think a lot of that is driven by uh, younger uh, members of society. The youth are really taking the lead in, in the whole climate change debate. Uh, and they're also changing the way we drink, apparently. They are indeed. That's <laughs> right. According to the Times, uh, the young are ditching bourgeois wine for some cider. Um, and the paper points out, you know, the cider was long dismissed as fr- in France as a cheap beverage fit only for those unable to afford a bottle of wine. Well, now that does seem to be changing, at least according to Jean-Francois Boujon, who is chairman of Cidrexpo, which is uh, the online cider fair. And he says that uh, that cider has been winning over city, young city de- dwellers who have come to view wine as bourgeois and a bit of out of step with the modern world. Interesting quote here. There's an example here. Um, the Domaine des Grottes, a vineyard in Beaujolais, which sells a fermented apple and grape beverage at €44 for three bottles. So that's like €15, £12 a bottle. Which, which is a decent amount for wine, but expensive for cider, yes. for my limited knowledge of it, isn't it? So that's, that's how it's changing. Yeah. And I think, I guess you kind of drink more of it, don't you? I mean, you well, wouldn't drink true. a pint of wine, but you would drink a pint of cider. That's true, so that's well, one I'm, bottle. Maybe yeah. I drink a pint of wine. <laughs> I I guess. Guess, yeah. <laughs> Certainly not um, cider. Yeah, uh, and of course one doesn't want to do that because that's when you start behaving inappropriately and possibly taking off your clothes and, and <laughs> indulging in a bit of gardening. Nice segue, yes indeed, exactly. So the New York Times... Uh, has a piece about the joys of naked gardening and apparently there has been a big increase. Uh, NIMBY apparently stands for nude in my backyard according to the (laughs) the New York Times and it talks about those who are celebrating World Naked Gardening Day which apparently is early in May so slightly behind on this one but never mind anyway it's just looking at uh, naked gardening is a thing according to the uh, New York Times and uh, it lists a hundred cities from the best to the worst for naked gardening. I wasn't quite sure how they worked this out but apparently it's something to do with um, sort of attitudes to, to new nakedness uh, anyway nakedness new, nudity, nudity nudity thank you that's what I'm looking for so um, but it, but it, yes complicated the paper points out that long gone are the days when nude swimming classes were routine on the other hand the free the nipple movement has raised awareness of gender discrimination around toplessness it's legal in New York for everyone says the paper so um, yeah the weather's getting better why not get out and do it uh, and I, I love the way that the sort of payoff here it says a story about nudist cooking recently appeared in our dining section, delving into the history and practices of naturism. If you cook in the nude, tending to your vegetables that way is the logical prelude. Well, I would say be very, very careful when <laughs> grilling your courgette. Absolutely. Deep frying and stuff could be very dangerous, couldn't it? Yeah. Simon Brook, thank you very much for joining us here on Monocle 24. Now let's round up the things we learned this week. Here's Monocle's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that the United Kingdom has had the grave misfortune to have been led through a crisis by a profoundly unsuitable cabal of quacks, spivs, grifters, bunglers, crackpots, dingbats, weirdos and yahoos. We're going to need that chorus of mock astonishment again. 
No. Really? Oh, what? that blows my what? mind. Really? No way. Blow me down. Yeah, really. But the interesting bit about this particular revelation vis-a-vis quacks, spivs, grifters, bunglers, crackpots, dingbats, weirdos and yahoos is that we learned this from one of them. It is completely crazy that I should have been in such a senior position, in my personal opinion. I'm not smart. I've not built great things in the world. It's completely crackers that someone like me should have been in there, just the same as if crackers that Boris Johnson was in there. And that the we learned that former Prime Ministerial Advisor Dominic Cummings possesses a humble streak which had been a hitherto well-concealed component of his character, as he spent several hours explaining to MPs how the UK's government had made a comprehensive dog's breakfast of the early response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We learned that this had a goodly deal to do with the fact that few senior ministers had much in the way of clue what they were doing, least of all, the most senior minister. And there was huge tension because the Prime Minister's view is literally that you couldn't get more diametrically. Where every bit as shocked as you are, and we're going to need that clip again. No. Really? Oh, that blows my mind. No way. Blow me down. We learned that flying to Belarus might be tricky for the foreseeable, or at least that your best chance of getting there might be booking a ticket between two completely different countries and seeing if you get lucky. This is a humorous reference to this week's foray into air piracy by the only Eastern European country where 1989 never entirely happened. We learned that Belarus's false flag game needs considerable work. We learned from the hapless stooge Belarus ushered in front of cameras to provide context for the hijacking and subsequent kidnapping of two Belarusian dissidents that the aircraft had been diverted to Minsk because Hamas had threatened to bomb it. Although we did not learn why Hamas, whose rage is primarily directed at Israel, would target a Polish-registered plane bearing the branding of an Irish airline flying between Greece and Lithuania. We did learn that Hamas denied, with an almost audible sigh, involvement. But then we learned that there was an email. Well, quite. We learned that Belarusian authorities claim to have the threat sent by Hamas, though among the things we did not learn was why it was sent 24 minutes after the pilot was first told by Belarusian authorities that there was a bomb on board, or indeed two days after the Gaza ceasefire the email was demanding. We learned that, regrettably, it may not be possible to take the word of the government of Belarus at face value. Quite the week of surprises it has been. In the United States. We learned that not inconsequential portions of Oregon wish to secede from what citizens of restive regions thereof increasingly regard as an intolerable nest of Democrat voting vegetarians and communists and amalgamate with the upright rock-ribbed steak-scoffing Republican patriots of neighbouring Idaho. Hence the B-52 song we're playing. We learnt that five more Oregonian counties had voted out 
This was last week, but we have been assiduously tracking the consequences, joining the two which had already raised the flag of revolt. We don't know if there's an actual flag. We learned, because other than the flag thing, we took the time to go into this thoroughly, that the movement animating these referendums has designs on fully 70% of Oregon's territory and wishes to make Idaho the third largest state in the Union behind Alaska and Texas. So we learned that exciting times may be looming for American cartographers and perhaps, depending how things shake out, for really enthusiastic US Civil War buffs. Maestro, let's do that hilarious thing where I ask for a song about cheeses and you pretend you've misheard again. For we learned that the careless display of cheese can have severe consequences for the unwary ne'er-do-well. A drug dealer received a 13-year stretch at Liverpool Crown Court after being tracked down via a picture of a wedge of Stilton. The hapless scoff law, and indeed scoff cheese, had posted a photo of his own hand cradling the slice of Marks and Spencer Mature Blue on a messaging service, and Merseyside's finest were able to recognise his fingerprints and thereby trace him. The unfortunate miscreant was led away in handcuffs and not, as might have been preferred... No, don't. No, no, no. Don't hear it. No oh, God, Andrew, no. Fetters. <coughs> fetters. Come on, feta cheese and fetters, <coughs> as in iron restraints. <laughs> You got there eventually, and that's all that matters. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, and it's time to hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. A year ago, you could order a home test kit from a private clinic to see whether you had covid Price, £400. Last Saturday, on a street corner in London, Soho, they were handing out free rapid antigen kits, hundreds of boxes being offered to anyone who wanted one. It's been a choppy week for COVID watchers in the UK, with case numbers up thanks to the so-called Indian variant, and consequently Germany, France, Switzerland and Austria bringing in quarantine measures for any Brits hoping to visit. But sometimes you do need to lift your head and celebrate the successes too. And how about this? In England, if you are aged 30 or over, you can now book your jab appointments. Lots of the Monocle crew have been this week and there's no hesitancy. Indeed, when people come back to the office after their date with the needle, everyone wants to hear what vaccine they had and how they feel. There's some excitement, a sense of duty. Our culture editor, Chiara, and Monocle 24's Carlotta are both having theirs a few hours apart at the same centre today. To show support for each other, they're even having a vaccine brunch in between. And it's just six months since the UK's vaccine programme began. Although, sadly, the first man to be jabbed here did die this week. Nothing to do with the vaccine, I hasten to add. In a stroke of luck for the PR drive back in December, 
the octogenarian's name was William Shakespeare, and he helped inspire some very good headlines. Although, recalling them this week over lunch, we agreed that the taming of the flu was hard to beat. Although, all's well that ends well was pretty good too. We also had a debate about how long it would be before you could open a curry shop called The Indian Variant or a beach shack bar called The Third Wave. Perhaps not too long, I hope. More good news. London is stirring. From new restaurants to gallery openings, suddenly it's quite busy. On Wednesday, I went to dinner at the just-opened Nomad Hotel that occupies the old Bow Street Police Station and Magistrates' Courts, where celebrated appearances in the dock included Oscar Wilde, Bertrand Russell and The Craze. It's an amazing sight, smack in front of the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden, and the hotel has been nicely inserted into the building. Of course, it's a scary time to be launching a hotel. There are no tourists to be found. But the sense of ambition, the desire to get moving, makes you wish these ventures very well. And the food is great. On a roll on Thursday to dinner in Fitzrovia. The weather has finally improved, and to make the most of this, many restaurants have colonised parking bays for outdoor dining setups. Although you can now eat inside a restaurant, many diners and drinkers seem to prefer being al fresco perhaps some residual fears. But it was just nice walking around, seeing so much frivolity and bonhomie at play. Again, just weeks ago, the best you could hope for was a takeaway coffee. We're not there yet, I know. There's still swirling anxiety when rules suddenly change or the numbers seem to head in the wrong direction. There's still frustration with how this has played out and with government failures. But every now and then, you just have to stop and look around. This is a story that has more twists and chapters than we bargained for. It's stymied well-laid plans, thwarted our dreams, but there are good people and good ideas at play. And if you don't see the sometimes faltering progress, you will be left feeling defeated or uneasy. This will come to pass. And in London, at least, you can now wake up with a slightly sore head and, as you lay there, decide to savour the dull, thudding consequences of a nightcap in a dazzling new hotel bar. Many thanks there to our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. And in our Monocle Minute Weekend Edition email bulletin, uh, there's lots more about London and various other cities opening up. So do sign up for that at monocle.com forward slash minute. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. Now, Healing Holidays are Europe's leading spa and wellness experts. The founder is Francis Gagan. Uh, and Francis, welcome to Monocle on Saturday. You're well known for your knowledge and your long-standing relationship with the world's top spa and wellness experts. For over a decade, your company sponsored both the Condé Nast Traveller and the Tatler Spa Guides. And that's just such a fantastic area to specialise in, given that you only recommend properties that you or your team have tried and tested yourselves. What a jammy gig. <laughs> Good morning, Georgina. Yes, it is. Um, it certainly is um, a wonderful job. Um, there are, you know, there's such an array of offerings at spas these days. So you really can hone in on a specific subject 
that you want to attack head on, whether that's weight loss or detox, whether you need some soul searching, you just need a mental detox. There's lots of options. So, yes, it's a, it's a huge world now in spas. Mm. How did you get into this line of work? It was more by default than anything else. I mean, we have Cleveland Collection and Africa Travel, which are tour operators that deal with Africa, Asia and the world. And we were getting an increasing amount of demands from our clients asking about wellness, wellness, well-being, detox, weight loss. So I just thought, you know, we're going to have to set up a company that completely focuses on that. You can't have staff, you know, working on Africa and selling wellness. It has to be, you have to be focused on the subject of wellness. You cannot do anything but wellness. So my staff at Healing Holidays only sell and focus and offer wellness and wellbeing holidays. Mm. So I wonder one, how one curates a portfolio of wellness retreats, as, as you have done. It's, 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 it's a process. It's a slow process. It's a long process. And there is more properties that I go and see or that approach me that we don't feature than we do because we have strict criteria. So we might go and like I recently went to see a spa um, which has all the raw ingredients to be something great, but it's far from being ready yet. So I will leave that for now and revisit it in eight, nine months and give it a chance to get itself together and then I will feature it. But it is a process. So, you know, I'm fortunate in that I work with in the industry with a lot of great journalists and spa writers and I'm very close to them. So I get the heads up from them of something that's interesting and good and then I will go and see it or one of my team will go and see it and away we go from there, Mm. you know. I wonder how, how does one identify a good spa? What are the key elements that one should be well, looking for? I think the most important thing above everything is the people who work there. I mean, you can have the most gorgeous location and state of the art everything. But if the people, the practitioners, the experts aren't on top of their game, then there's just no point in even considering it. You know, I mean, and it does, you have to give spas time to get these great people together. You know, that's the thing. I mean, there are some, like Chiva Som is, you know, up there as the best, probably the best spa in the world, but it's been perfecting its art for 25 years. You know what I mean? And now it's really there with the best practitioners, the best Pilates, the best physios, the best nutritionists, the greatest um, acupuncturist, you know, but it has taken time. And I'm sure if you spoke to the owner, Kun Kripp, he would tell you, that he learned a lot of lessons along the way, you know. So it's it's a time thing more than anything else, Georgina. Um, you're not going to open a spa in June this year and it's going to be the best in the world. It absolutely isn't. It'll take time. It'll take a few years to bed in, to get your people right, how they all work together, how the kitchen works with, you know, how the food you eat is very important 
in, with the treatments you're doing. If you're on a detox, everything has to work really well together. And that takes time more than anything else, you know. Absolutely. I've been so struck by sort of visiting spa hotels in, mm. in beautiful locations and thinking how lovely it is and then yeah. having an indifferent massage. And, and then that's you, the problem. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then you think, actually, but why would a fantastic masseuse be in this place which is in the middle of nowhere? I mean, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? It is very difficult, which is why, you know, you know, people like Sanu at the Saniva Properties in the Maldives, I mean, he has a background in wellness, granted, but now he's sort of the owner of these great luxury hotels in the Maldives. He brings in the big guns to do retreats. He can't have them on site. 365 days a year but he will bring them in to do retreats like Roger Moore who's this extraordinary trauma healer he's been there on a doing a treat for the last month so these you know people like Sanu know like you said you're not going to have the great experts in the world sitting in the middle of nowhere they need energy from other sources they need to constantly to be treating people or they lose their gift in many ways. Mm. So um, that's why you will find that more and more visiting experts for in, in these remote, remote locations. So when we, as uneducated members of the public, I speak for myself here, of course, mm -hmm. um, are uh, choosing where to go, we should really be looking, I mean, obviously at the facilities, but, but mostly at, at, at the staffing of these places and who's on hand, yeah. who's a, a visiting expert and so on. And, uh, very important, very important. And who the great doctors are, because what's very popular at the moment, Georgina, I guess, as an after effect of COVID is, you know, medical treatment and medical spas, because they, they obviously, some people who've had COVID are going through long COVID, and they want to go and address this in the great medical clinics, and they are located in Europe. Um, and you know who these doctors are, and they're just fantastic at what they do. You're going to get the time, you're going to get, you know, the focus on you, and they will turn it around, you mm. know. Uh, speaking of COVID, of course, that must have had a huge effect on the industry. Massive. I mean, massive. There's, there are many spas that are, you know, I, I wonder will they ever even open again, especially these small little spas in, in Europe that maybe just had started prior to COVID. It's very difficult for them because they wouldn't have been able to keep on the staff. And if you lose the great staff, then you have nothing. Mm. So it has a massive impact, but it also has given them time to sort of relock at what they're offering and look at their programs and where do they need to be improved and really go into training. I know a lot of them have done big training programs. Some in Thailand, like, for example, have remained open throughout COVID. Um, also, Shaw in Spain, for example, that remained open throughout COVID, as did the Mayer Clinics in Austria and Germany. So some of them never closed at all. Mm. And you could go there on the grounds of medical treatment. I mean, Viva Mayer, we couldn't get enough rooms at Viva Mayer during COVID. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's a way of combining a spa holiday, i.e. a time when you're perhaps reflecting, looking inward, taking a lot of care and attention of your body and yourself and your mind, with something a bit more social. Can you have a fun holiday where you get to meet people and perhaps don't have to detox entirely and also yes. be having a spa holiday you absolutely can and you know a prime example of someone great like that is Kamalaya in Thailand so you can go there you could be with somebody who's doing a hardcore detox but you yourself you just want a bit of healing a bit of time as you said to treat yourself and have a very social 
time in the evening. Wonderful place, Kamalaya. Vana in India, Ananda in India. These are all extraordinary places that allow that and lend itself very well to sort of being social, but in a wellness environment. You're not going to be having bottles of wine or anything like that. You can. It'll be organic and it'll be minimum amount that you will be allowed but you can certainly have a very social time and a lovely time, mm. um, albeit maybe perhaps different to what we're used to. So, Francis, as far as I understand it, then, what people do is they come to you with, with basically a menu and they might say, OK, I, I want to detox, I want to do a bit of Pilates and I want to be near the sea. And you kind of do your magic and come up with the place. Yes. Or you could get somebody who comes through and says, my husband died Two weeks ago, I can't cope. I'm at the end of my tether. I need to go and heal. Where can you send me? Mm. So there really is a very, very different type of request. We're getting a lot of people that have got big anxieties, fears, who want to go and address these, you know, in in, in, in an environment totally with the right people. Um, And that's becoming, sadly, much, 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 um, very much in demand now. So emotional issues is a big problem, definitely, definitely. Do you know, detox, weight loss, all of those, it's easy. It's just, how how do you want to approach it? Do you want to do a medically supervised detox? Or do you want to do a traditional mercure? Or did you want to do Ayurveda? You know, that's not that difficult. It's somebody who is emotionally at the end of their tether. It's looking for the right place for them. That is a little bit more challenging because it requires a lot of time with the person to talk through the options. And that's something that people get with you. How wonderful. Uh, Francis, thank you so much for speaking to us. Francis' company is called Healing Holidays and you can find out much more about what she does there. Uh, Francis Gagan, thank you very much indeed. And that's all we have time for on today's programme. Thanks very much to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I am Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thank you for listening.